international anthem. A record label embodied by community. A community of artists, musicians, and cultural producers dedicated to their craft. Born in Chicago and proudly sprouting from the city's creative musical traditions, the community has grown into a global network of like-minded contributors true to the label's name. I'm Ayana Contreras, and in this program, we'll be diving deep into the albums of International Anthem in conversation with the creators, coloring the context, sharing the more intimate stories, and celebrating the humanity that's inherent in what you hear. Stay tuned. Squeezebox Books and Records puts Evanston's most eclectic selection right at your fingertips. More records, more tapes, and more compact discs than you'll find in a six-block radius. With low everyday Squeezebox prices and a friendly staff, we carry all the music you love. Rock, classical, Latin, Broadway, pop, soul, and more. If you haven't heard about Squeezebox, it's time you did. Find us online at Squeezebox Books. Important? More than important, brother. This is the beginning, not the end. I'm Ayana Contreras. And this is the International Anthem Podcast. Damon Locks is a musician. He's an artist. He's a keeper of the culture. And in my conversation with Damon, we talked about his work with the Black Monument Ensemble, how an 80s punk rocker could be a superhero. We talked about collecting records. And we talked about how we can all move forward while holding on and and protecting our past. Now, where do we start? One of the things that I think about when I think about your work is I think about you as an archivist. Mm -hmm. Like, first and foremost, sort of a person who is really nourished and fed by the works and the creative people who have come before you. And a lot of your works are clearly informed by even just some of the feelings that other creatives have put into their work. Um, You know, I never really really thought of myself as an archivist, um, but I will, I buy that, you know? You know, I've always been someone that has gathered the things that I find inspiring and the things that I will need, you know, need to either pass on or continue to think about. As a child, it was comic books. And then as I got older, it was records. And now it's everything, you know, books and DVDs. Oh, I aged myself by having a huge crate full of DVDs. Um, But I, I think 
I think about myself as someone that is like, you know, connected to this kind of stream of information and how can I continue to pass that on? You know, I, I feel like your your practice is definitely that, you know? Um, it's about how you can be a, a conduit to c- can keep that information or that content or those feelings or the... Um, Uh, or the information just moving. I think that's right. I mean, I think there isn't a week that goes by where somebody doesn't contact me asking me about some old thing, you know, either something that I've played on my show or something, you know, that they've uncovered that I've written about that they want to know more about. Because I think we, we lull ourselves into a false sense of security that everything is online. Right. And it's not. And it's not. It's definitely not. This guy was like frantically emailing me trying to find this photo that I showed during a talk. And I was like, it's not anywhere. You cannot Google it. I mean, I have it, but I'm at home now. And so I can't like give you a high quality scan. You just have to remember that it is real. (laughs) So. And uh, I mean, it takes the like most beautiful and amazing things, you know, some of them are on the internet, but it takes, you know, archivists and curators and people, artists and people that care to digitize that and make sure it's available, you know? That's right. It gets so, That's right. It, all, it all gets so lost and, and you have to have a, and it takes an eye and it takes an eye and an ear to realize that something is important, you know? Right. And if you're like me, and I think that you are, um, you don't care, care that much about the Internet. A black people upon whose backs have been built the wealth of three continents. And I will tell them this and more. And their heritage shall be their weapon and their armor. Their black heritage will make them strong enough to win any battle they may face. I'm thinking of a specific instance where outside of your music practice and, of course, your visual art practice where you're utilizing, you know, like you're hearkening back to some older conceptions. I'm thinking about this article that was published in the March 2018 issue of Poetry Magazine called um, Digging Culture. That's the one where you kind of set up this little tableau of you going to the record store looking for Olivia Lawson turned out by the whispers. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And now she's turned out. But yeah. So good, so good. Anyway, so that record, you were looking for that record and you you luck up and find this rare record with Dr. Margaret Burroughs on it. Yeah. Um, what shall I tell my children who are black? Right. Oh, such a jam. Like, you know, I'm looking in the spoken word or even like the like black studies section. It's way in the back of the, you know, I think they had even moved it. So I had to ask someone where it was now. And I'm standing on a chair, you know, thumbing through the records. And there's a million, you know, Martin Luther King speeches and a million, you know, uh, Malcolm X. I find this record that doesn't have a jacket and has a has an insert and the sleeve. And I pull it out and 
A, the first thing I see is a Dr. Margaret Burroughs print. And then on the record sleeve, there's a description, a photograph of her. And I'm like, what? This is amazing. And I run right up to the counter and I'm like, how much is this? And they're like, well, it doesn't have a jacket, so $4.99. And I was like, sold. <laughs> That's how that goes sometimes. What shall I tell my children who are black of what it means to be a captive in this dark skin? What shall I tell my dear ones, fruit of my womb, of how beautiful they are when everywhere they turn they are faced with abhorrence of everything that is black? And that's that thing, you know, like that's the thing that keeps you keeps you digging because you don't get that all the time. You know, you don't get that magical thing that's just like, bam, here you go, you know? But there's also a part of it where sort of the ravenous record collectors, they tend to be looking for some very specific things. And you and me, we get excited about some things that they might be less excited about. Right. So, you know, we might be in an advantage when we're looking for, like, you know, poetry records or something like that. Yes. You know? <laughs> and I, I especially love to go to, like, other towns because I feel like when you're in other towns, there are, you know, aesthetics that have nothing to do with your aesthetics, you know? Like... I want to go to the I want to go to the spoken word section when I'm in New Orleans because they might not be looking for all the same stuff. I, you know, crate diggers or if there's a me in New Orleans, they might have a totally different focus. You know, it's really fascinating to me that there's this parallel part of that same sort of collecting that you do with visual bits and bobs, right? Like, for especially for the collage work that you do. Do you, th I mean, like, what is that process like? Well, I'm, I'm adjusting that process as we speak. You know, when I was doing a lot of digital collage work, um, I had a pretty strict rule that I needed to take the photographs. And um, so I would just roam around the city you know, taking pictures of buildings and sidewalks and texture and, and buses and trains and crowds of people. And, and I would have all of these, um, you know, I have archives, you know, uh, of all of, this, all of this imagery that I would pull from when making an image. And that really worked well for me. Um, I loved it. Uh, I think of late, I've been really trying to lean on my drawing skills a lot. So I've been trying to do something similar, but with drawings. So now I'm looking at, at the world and looking at photographs and looking at stuff and then drawing it and holding on to those drawings until I can find a place for them in, uh, in my work. So maybe a couple of years ago, I would draw something and then scan it and keep it in my you know, hard drive until it was it was the right thing I needed for an image, and then I would collage it together and make like a screen print or something. Um, but these days, I'm just straight up drawing stuff, cutting it out, and gluing it onto a piece of paper. You know, so it's the same thought process, but augmenting like the amount of work or the amount of like translation that I, I have to do. You know, when you, you when you're using a camera. You have to take a you take a photograph of a building or a car or a bus or, or a person, 
And then you put it into Photoshop and you translate it and you cut it out and you put it into an image, right? You might even make it smaller or bigger or distort it somehow. But um, when you see something, you have to do this whole set of translations to get it to come through your hand, through the ink, through the bamboo, onto the paper, you know? And then you have to cut it, cut it with scissors and glue it somewhere. So it's just a, a, a different set of translation skills I'm trying to work on. It adds another la layer of texture, as they say, also. Yeah. And I love the imperfection also, because luckily I, I've always been happy with my drawing skills. But there's always the, like, you're definitely making it your own when you filter it through your brain and your hand, and you have to, like, make all these decisions about what it looks like in a drawing as opposed to a photograph. Right, for sure. I mean, a translation, definitely when you're taking something that's three-dimensional and turning it into a line drawing. thing that maybe like armchair fans of Damon Locks or newly newly acquired fans might not know and I say a lot of the times that people have past lives where it's like I mean you know it's it's one continuous thing but who you like were and you're interfacing with the world is changes you know as time progresses so like in a past life you were primarily like a commercial graphic designer, right? Um, that's how I kind of like spent my artistic energy, you know, by like designing record covers. In, in many ways that was connected because of my love of music, you know. I loved comics, thought I was going to draw comics, um, didn't have the patience for drawing the panels that were them not fighting, you know, like when they were just like getting in a car or sitting in an apartment, I didn't want to draw any of that. So I never really got to be a good comic book artist. Um, but then when I found music, when I started listening to like punk music, you could dress up like a superhero, you know? In 1983, you could get like a mohawk and wear crazy clothes and, you know, you could be your own superhero. When trying to apply my visual work, instead of liking superheroes and drawing comics, I like music and I drew the album covers, you know, so that was the analog. When people understand that background and that sort of past life, um, I think maybe they might look at the album cover work that you've done for both of your projects in a new light as well, because those that's you. I mean, there's not a lot of people who do their own covers on that level. You know, every once in a while, there'll be a photo that somebody took, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. but yours are incredible, dense, 
works that communicate the album's ethos in a way that words cannot. Yeah. I'm, I'm super proud of that. That's something that has been, that I've been able to build into the thing where I always, I'm always doing the record cover so you get extra information about the music by looking at the album cover or, or I always think of it as the album cover as the like introduction to the world of the music. So I, you know, like yourself, I'm sure, like I grew up staring at album covers, you know? So you were just like, this is the, the environment from which the music came, you know? So having you know, total control or being able to like expand the, the vision just from the sonic to the visual has been like just a, a joy. Shining solar light as far as I see. So in terms of the music, this second album was recorded during very different circumstances than the first, right? Like, so the first was recorded at the Garfield Park Conservatory, right? Yes, in a really celebratory, fully actualized, I mean, if folks haven't been there, the conservatory has every sort of flora that you can imagine. It's just absolutely outrageous and it smells like earth. It's just like a really beautiful space. Yes, the air is different in there. Every time I go, every time I go there, I'm like, how come I'm not here every single day? And to be able to play a show there, that was like a dream come true. Like I had really kind of earmarked that spot um, for this performance, and that you know, that show was the culmination of all this like building of what Black Monument Ensemble could be, and that was literally the crystallization of all of these ideas. Where future unfolds, where we can feel Because we had dancers and we had costumes and the costumes were coming together at the last minute and the dancers, you know, were getting the music because we were still finishing some of the new music. We didn't get a chance to rehearse with the dancers and the musicians. So when we got there the, the night before, we were like walking through what was gonna happen for the, the show. And I remember while we were playing the show, there was a, a song or two which we just didn't rehearse how the song was gonna end, <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, well, I, I hopefully we'll figure out how to end the song. And, um, and we did, and that recording of that one show became the first album. So all of that became like the definitive versions of the songs that we've been working on for a couple of years. It's an amazing record. It really is. I wasn't there. Um, so full disclosure, I have seen you all perform. I saw you at the South Shore Cultural Center, as a matter of fact, but I did not see that night. But that album, I think, still imbues like a space and a place. It, actually, speaking of records, it reminds me a little bit of kind of how that album, The Black Fairy, even though that one was recorded in a studio, it actually isn't a recording of a live um, uh, performance of that play, it still sort of captures a lot of that energy mm -hmm. of the play. The reason why it was such a um, favorite for 
you know, folks growing up on the west side back in the 70s. Tell them they are beautiful, as beautiful as the stars. Tell them they are wonderful. Uh, well, that's a huge compliment. And that was also one of those records that I had to, like, keep my eye open for, you know, because there's a couple different versions of it. And I wanted the full color Barbara Jones Hogu cover, you know. And I saw it once in Germany, and and I didn't have any, you know, euros on me at the time. I didn't feel like engaging with the, like, ATMs there, you know? And I let it pass. So then it took me another, like, year or so to actually come across it here. But that is all to say that I appreciate the comparison because a comparison to an album that I sought after for a long time is high praise. But yes, this, this new uh, recording is, was done in a fully different environment. So the first part, um, I guess the initial recordings took place outside at the Experimental Sound Studio, right? Yeah. And it was summer, and there was like cicadas. Uh, if I can backtrack just a little bit, but at the beginning of the pandemic, um, uh, when we were all just like blindsided by this new thing that we had to absorb, um, Scotty over International Anthem suggested that we release a song called Stay Beautiful that was unfortunately, you know, not included on the first album for time constraints. I love the song. It just, we, it, it, I just had to, you know, we had to make a hard choice. And so he was like, let's release this song as a single right now. We had shot footage, same, so we can make a video. Um, Brian suggested that we ask uh, members of the group to film something and to add to the video. And I asked people to film something that makes them feel like sane or, or grounds them. And so people sent in homemade video stuff and add to the, that was added to the video. And, um, and people just really responded to it and they were very thankful to have it. And I, I felt good to be able to offer something.
And then as time went on with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, defund the police and all of these things were happening. And I could tell from Instagram that people had been like listening to Where Future Unfolds a lot um, because people were looking for that kind of content amongst many other records. But um, people were really appreciative of that record and it meant a lot to me. And I started thinking about like, what would it take to create something new like so that Black Monument could say something new in this time period instead of, you know, what Black Monument was saying two years ago. So I set myself upon like the task of uh, writing new material. I didn't have a goal uh, of a new record. I just wanted to write and record and see if we can figure out how to do that. And it was a whole different process. I kind of demoed the songs that I wrote, uh, like fully, like wrote the songs out with samples and, and drum machines and sang them. And um, there was one song that we had written before the pandemic um, that I was holding on to. And um, at one point I got together with the singers, told them my idea. We, we, we met outside in the park, it was beautiful. I played the music over a boombox. They, they liked it. I was like, okay, cool, I'm psyched. And then I just started to talk to people about what it would look like to record a group that has, you know, up to six vocalists, uh, clarinetists and uh, cornetists, you know, and two drummers. And like, you know, in a time when breath is dangerous, you know, like what would that look like? And so I hit up ESS and said, well, if we record half the group in the backyard and uh, Alex Inglesian from ESS was was up for it. And so that was that was the plan. I knew I could do that. made that happen, you know, I set up another session for um, Ben Lamar and Aru Smith and Dana Hall. So it was the singers plus Angel and myself in the backyard. And then the next session, which was like a month later, was um, the other three musicians uh, laying down their tracks. But it was intense. Uh, honestly, Ayana, it was intense. I was, I was nervous. I was real scared about making sure that people were safe. Like, I felt like everyone wanted to get together and create something new. Amazing singers, uh, Philip and Tremaine and, and Monique and Eric and Erica and Richie, they all came and they had not, you know, they hadn't gotten a chance to like perform the songs all the way through. Normally it's a process of show the songs, go to rehearsal, play a bunch of shows, and then you record it at some point. This was like, let's get into the energy of the song and let's let's see what happens. And, you know, they had to figure out what 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 harmonies and what things were they were gonna put in where. 
think we ended around eight o'clock each night, started around four, um, two of those in a row of working on these songs. And it was really beautiful. And it was also, it was really tough because the second day was like an anniversary of the 63 March on Washington and the death of Emmett Till. The first day was like 93 degrees outside. The second day was maybe 89 degrees. And we did it all and we get home and um, Chadwick Boseman died. I didn't even realize that that was going to affect me as much as, as it did, but we were thinking about police brutality and, and, and racial injustice, and then the biggest black superhero dies on that day. I was just like, this is just too much. So, so it was a lot, but both sessions were just a really lovely communion with other artists, which is something that we don't get to have as much. If I understand right, if you had pleaded guilty, you would have already been out of jail. Probably would have. I probably would have went in front of the parole board in a year. And made parole, I probably would have been out of Sounds like a pretty good deal. If I was guilty, I probably would have taken it. But, uh, but you didn't take it. No, sir. Because? I'm not guilty. You said that what you noticed, like on social media, um, was that a lot of folks were gravitating towards where future unfolds in this past year. Maybe as a South, I mean, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons why somebody would be attracted to it. It's just good music, right? Um, what do you hope that people get out of this album? Um, well, the new record is called Now, and I was really, I was really trying to bring something new to the table like w what do we do now like you know like what is what does black monument have to say now there's a short story by Cadwell Turnbull um that was called jump that i heard uh lavar burton read on his lavar burton reads um podcast it's a short story about uh a young couple who do something amazing. They teleport. And the piece was all about possibility, you know, about what, what could happen and what gets in the way of possibility. And so I thought that I would write material that was addressing this idea of possibility, what is possible. And the song that imbues that the most is now forever momentary space. And we were places that we'd never been before. It's about the place where something new is possible that's outside the timeline, and that's now. Like, like through a green forest, just laughing and dancing. And then the trees turned in, into a million people. And we just kept laughing and dancing and telling them how much we loved each other. What'd you say?
idea of past, present, future is really in this particular album in a really interesting way. Um, as someone who really toys a lot with, or maybe a toy isn't the right word, but utilizes and draws from a lot of things in the past, do you think of yourself as nostalgic? Do you ever like have issues balancing between past, present, and future? Hmm, well, I've always been a big science fiction nerd, you know? And so the future has always been something that was thought of and kind of ever-present, if that can be said. The future can always be ever-present. And I find that some of the most interesting ideas about the future happened in the past. <laughs> so, you know, whether it's Twilight Zone or whether it's Sun Ra or whether it's, you know, the P-Funk or, you know, like this idea of futuristic is still really engaging, you know, even if, even if we're living past the future that half of these stories would shoot for, you know? Um, so in in many ways, I'm, I'm looking to the past because the ideas are still relevant, you know? We haven't really moved that far from the past. In many ways, they're, they're still very forward-thinking. I do look at the past um, and and contemplate the future as I live in the present. Um, I don't know if that's nostalgia or just common sense to me. Absolutely, which I guess goes back to the idea of why a person would be interested in archiving. Right. Because you're not necessarily, I mean, from my perspective, right, like you're not necessarily trying to recreate a past reality but trying to pull from that past in order to make a better future. Exactly. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> All right, so as we wrap up this conversation, is there a song in your catalog, past, present, future, because you've been recording a long time under a lot of different names, including, but not limited to, um, one of my favorites, The Eternals. Is there a song that really captures sort of where you're at right this second? Wow, that's a good, that's a hard question, you know? Um, there's an eternal song called Black Museum that is off an EP that still really resonates with me. And it says, I know what I want. I know what I want to do. Like ghosts in the wind, ooh, I know what I want to see in museums.
<laughs> um, and I feel like that just those lines, which I think are the only lines in the song, um, I just feel like that kind of presages, if that's a right, if that's a good, uh, accurate term, like a thought process that I wasn't even at yet. You know what I mean? Um, and I feel like it, 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 it encompasses a lot of what we talk about today. And it's on this really weird Eternals EP called Black Museum that very few people have. Kind of inspired by the imagination of you know great minds that came before me you know like you know your Rod Serling's or your Ralph Ellison's you know um that still if I go back and I listen to them they have something to say to me today <laughs> 